The People's History of Kansas City podcast is supported by the Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art, celebrating 30 years at the Block Party on Saturday, May 4th. Visitors can enjoy music, food trucks, exhibitions, and artist-led activities. Learn more at KemperArt.org. Hey there, I'm Suzanne Hogan, and you're listening to A People's History of Kansas City. We are so happy to be back. And on this episode, we're biting into the origins of a fundamental American creation, the hamburger. Most people think the burger began with McDonald's. But the truth is that it was created decades earlier. And it was in Kansas that the burger got its starring moment. Thanks to what most historians agree is the country's first fast food restaurant. White Castle really did set the table, if you will, for hamburgers to declare its primacy as an American culinary icon. Our pledge to our customers, serving the finest products and the cleanest surroundings. But White Castle is the kind of underdog in this story. White Castle, home of the OG slider. You know, those little square burgers. Well, it all started in Wichita, Kansas, just over 100 years ago. But you wouldn't know that driving around the state today. There hasn't been a White Castle in Wichita since the 1930s or one in the entire state of Kansas in decades. Why did it leave? And why doesn't White Castle get more credit for laying the foundation of America's fast food kingdom? People in cities across America said, okay, there's something about this White Castle. We're not sure what it is. So let's just copy the whole damn thing. What White Castle really did, it's hard to understand. It's hard to grasp because it came from virtually nothing. To understand this burger crazy world we now live in, we have to go back in time. Before the Big Mac and the Whopper, and even before the concept of fast food, to Kansas. But just to be up front here for a second, I just want to say I've been a vegetarian for like more than half of my life. But producer Mackenzie Martin is a proud burger lover, and she's been the one digging into this history of fast food in this region. And what she found was so interesting and multifaceted that we're making this a two-part series. Okay, here's Mackenzie with part one. Let me tell you about my ideal hamburger. It's medium rare on a brioche bun with bacon, aioli, lettuce, tomato, and sharp white cheddar. In a pinch, though, I'll eat just about any burger you got. And there's a lot out there to try. America, after all, is obsessed with hamburgers. There's nothing in the world that can compare with a hamburger. Juicy But here's the thing. Hamburgers didn't start out as an all-American favorite. In fact, we used to be afraid of them. And how we learned to love the burger? Well, that started with a fry cook named J. Walter Anderson. Walt was born in Kansas in 1880 to Swedish immigrants. And he was one of those guys that never really stayed in one place for too long. He was always on the lookout for his next big adventure. For years, he wandered around the Midwest, including a brief stint in show business, before eventually making his way to Wichita, Kansas, where he got a job in a diner. And it was there, as the legend goes, that he created his version of the hamburger. There was this one anecdote about how he was frying these meatballs and he got frustrated and took the spatula and just slammed it down, made it into a patty. And people liked it. That's David Hogan, a professor of history at Heidelberg University and author of the book Selling Them by the Sack, all about the history of White Castle. 
To be clear here, he's not saying Walt Anderson invented the hamburger, but this was an important turning point on its way to what we know and love today. Prior to that, it had been essentially a meatball on a slice of bread. He put it between two halves of a bun, and now we have the food that we're most familiar with. Technically, the combination of hot ground beef between two slices of bread first arrived in the U.S. in the late 1800s. But by flattening the patty and putting it in between a bun, Walt Anderson did take a big culinary leap forward. Hogan calls it the beginning of the modern hamburger. If you ate it now, you might even call it something else. A slider. Okay, so it was 1916 when Walt Anderson started his first burger place, outfitting an old shoe repair stand with three stools and a sign reading, Hamburgers, five cents. An unassuming aesthetic, sure, but Walt's early burgers were famously good. And Walt encouraged customers to buy them by the sack, which they did, because at the time, multiple things were converging in Wichita to create the perfect demographic for Walt's sandwiches. Wichita had been known as a cow town ever since cattle drives in the late 1800s. But starting in the early 1900s, it also became a place of innovation and industrialization. And the combination of more people moving to cities in general, and the Kansas oil boom in particular, caused Wichita's population to boom. According to the U.S. Census, Wichita had a whopping 72,000 residents by 1920. The people who were eating the hamburgers initially were Walt Anderson's factory worker clientele. And this is the early 1900s, and we're in the midst of a huge immigration wave. That's Adam Chandler, a journalist and the author of drive Through Dreams, about our love affair with fast food. These were people who were on their breaks or on their way to the factory. They wanted something that was quick, savory, and hearty, and cheap. And that is exactly what these sliders provided. By 1920, Walt had opened his fourth stand in Wichita. He was being hailed as king of the hamburger, and word had even spread beyond the working class, sorta. Walt told the Wichita Eagle that kids would regularly pop into a stand to get half a dozen to carry out. Then he'd watch as they'd run around the corner to a fancy car where their mothers were waiting, too ashamed, he presumed, to come into Walt's dinky little place themselves. It wasn't just Walt's humble storefront scaring off these women, though. It was the stigma around eating ground beef at all. See, in the early 1900s, ground beef wasn't just déclassé to Americans. It was seen as a legitimate public health threat, in part thanks to The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, a popular book still taught in high schools across America. It's a book that takes the country by storm. You may remember being lectured by it, maybe falling asleep. Back in 1906, the jungle meant to raise the alarm of working conditions at meat processing plants. But it had an unintended side effect. Everybody who read it or heard about it read instead that, oh my God, eating meat is bad. It's dangerous. So for a long time, it was avoided. I mean, in the early 1900s, there was no health code or official FDA. Dining out was gaining in popularity, but it was also a calculated risk. As a result, the American public had this long-lasting fear about the perils of ground beef, which brings us back to how impressive Walt's success was in 1920. Most historians think Walt's notoriety would have stayed in the confines of Wichita, though, if he hadn't crossed paths with someone else around this time. Edgar Waldo Ingram, known as Billy, was an insurance and real estate broker, and he was extremely intrigued by this hamburger operation. 
Billy Ingram is the ultimate 1920s booster, you know, those kinds of machine-age industrialists just hustling nonstop to sell you something. Billy Ingram sees the popularity of Anderson's hamburger stands, and he says, well, this is fine and good, but we have to legitimize this product. We have to intentionally make this something that more than just the poor buy. In other words, Billy was the visionary who wanted to turn Walt's stands into essentially a large-scale restaurant chain, the likes of which didn't yet exist. He said, we have to have the best product, the healthiest product, in the most cleverly surroundings that we could possibly have. Walt was well aware of the stigma attached to ground beef, so he had already implemented a few things to calm customers down. Like he had fresh beef delivered twice a day, and even ground the meat in front of customers. But with the addition of Billy on the team, these initiatives were taken to new, slightly neurotic heights. He doubled down on cleanliness, standardization, and efficiency from the start, so customers could feel comfortable and safe eating at his burger joints. Billy and Walt debuted the new concept in March 1921, the White Castle system of eating houses, which was later shortened to just White Castle. White to signify purity, and castle to signify strength and permanence. This was important because a lot of people thought that the hamburger industry was very fly-by-night. He wanted to show that now we're here forever, we're going to stand behind our product. The idea was to give every customer the same perfect experience, starting with the castles themselves, which were made out of white porcelain steel, making them shiny and easy to clean. There was a lot of character in these white castle buildings. They actually looked like castles. They had this kind of aura and stained glass turreted aesthetic that I thought, looking at it, why wouldn't you want to eat there? It looks like a lot of fun. Inside, the restaurants all had the same layout. A grill, a counter, and five stools. And the menu featured just a handful of items. Coffee, Coca-Cola, pie, and hamburgers made exclusively of beef shoulder meat. The White Castle hamburger is... Have you ever tried one, Mackenzie? I have. They're interesting. They're kind of like scientific in the way they have those holes and everything. Scientific's a nice way of putting it. Okay, for those of you who haven't eaten one, White Castle sliders are small. They're just big enough to kind of fit in the palm of your hand. And the patties are square so that every inch of space can be used on the grill. Beginning in the 50s, they started putting five holes in each patty, which seems strange, but it promotes faster cooking. And now the patties aren't even flipped anymore. So they're not really grilled, per se, as much as they're steamed on a bed of onions, along with the buns, which infuses everything with this really specific oniony flavor. It's a very unique form of hamburger today. If you put them juxtaposed with other major hamburgers, the average consumer would not go for the White Castle. White Castle thrives where there is a very long, in many cases a century-old, tradition of White Castle. From the start, there was a certain je ne sais quoi about White Castle. Like, each White Castle was open concept, so you could watch as one of their charming cooks quickly prepared your burger on the impeccably clean grill in front of you. And unlike restaurants nearby, the food was served pretty much instantaneously. Employees up until World War II were all male, 
And from the very beginning, Billy Ingram said, we want our employees to be extremely positive. We want them to be customer friendly. Billy actually had a lot of rules for his employees. He insisted that they wear clean white shirts, pants, and aprons. Hair was to be covered by a white cap. Fingernails were to be kept neat and clean. And elaborate jewelry and wristwatches were strictly prohibited. White Castle even hung up posters with a diagram of a model employee, warning of the dangers of bad breath and body odor. In return, Hogan says, White Castle paid its employees a relatively generous salary and covered some health care costs long before it was the norm. This was especially impressive considering that by the mid-1920s, White Castle was expanding to a new city every few months. Omaha, Kansas City, St. Louis. A company newsletter, affectionately called The Hot Hamburger, connected employees across the country. And White Castle even purchased a company plane so that Billy and Walt could regularly visit the new castles and make sure they were up to snuff. They strategically built near factories and later college campuses. He was going to take anybody's dollar, or in the case of this, anybody's nickel. And during a time when African-Americans couldn't travel safely around the country or freely enter most restaurants, Hogan says White Castle was an outlier. White Castles were known during the Great Migration as a place where African-Americans could stop and get food. In those early days, no one was doing what they were doing. We have Mr. E. W. Ingram, Sr., and he is the president of the White Castle system. Okay, this is kind of hard to make out, but what you're hearing is a clip of Billy Ingram being interviewed in Ohio around 1947. How are you this afternoon, Mr. Ingram? Very well, thank you. A reporter asks him about the competition in the early days, and he's just like, what competition? This may seem strange to you, but when I went to Omaha, there were no hamburger stands, and when I went to Kansas City, there were no hamburger stands. Fast forward to the end of the 1920s, though, and White Castle, and hamburgers in general, were considered trendy. The company even had a stronghold in New York City. It was a craze. It literally was a craze. It was like everybody just thought that this new product was so incredible. This new burger craze also reflected the bigger changes American culture was going through. Americans were craving standardization and uniformity, more interested in national products than locally produced ones. I think there was something about what Billy Ingram was selling with the hamburger that made it seem modern, that made it seem like the culinary analog of the moment, where he has this proto-assembly line of people creating all these burgers, while, you know, a few hundred miles north, the assembly lines of Detroit are churning out Model T's. White Castle hamburgers appealed to the same customers who were buying manufactured clothing from Sears Roebuck and shopping at the supermarket for Kellogg's Corn Flakes and Campbell's Soup. I think White Castle really spoke to that, that ethos in creating a product that was small and affordable and portable. That was a huge part of it. You didn't need utensils. You didn't need a plate. You could just take it with you and go. To really make hamburgers an American icon, though, White Castle had to move beyond their working-class customers and seduce the middle class, which the company did with a number of slightly bizarre but effective methods. Like in 1930, when White Castle tried to convince people that its sliders weren't just safe, they were also nutritional. 
White Castle even commissioned a study at the University of Minnesota, where a medical student ate nothing but White Castle hamburgers and water for 13 weeks. At the end of the experiment, a food scientist came to the conclusion that a normal, healthy child could subsist off a totally White Castle diet and be perfectly fine. It was trying to convince young families, especially the moms who were in charge of the households back then, to feel comfortable serving these meals to their kids. The sandwich is practically American institution. As far as these boys are concerned, well, hamburgers and hot dogs are their idea of a really good meal. But there are sandwiches and sandwiches. The smartest thing Billy Ingram did to capture this new audience, though, was in 1932, when he retained the services of an actress named Ella Louise Aniel and dubbed her Julia Joyce, the White Castle hostess. You can think of her as a fictitious spokesperson in the same vein as Betty Crocker, who was invented a decade earlier. And this is what we're so excited about. What she would do was basically speak to women's groups and anyone who would listen, really, about the nutritional benefits of eating hamburgers. White Castle didn't stop at moms, either. In the 50s, David Hogan says White Castle went after the children's market a population of 54 million youngsters who, at the time, accounted for about 40% of the country's food consumption. One example of this was in Louisville, where they sponsored a children's television show called The Cactus and Randy Show. White Castle employees would feed hamburgers to the cowboy attire-clad characters who would enthusiastically proclaim the burger, Cowboy Good. And according to at least one local manager, it was successful. Kids were appearing in greater numbers in Louisville, supposedly begging their parents to take them because of the TV show. It all fed into Billy Ingram's larger strategy from the start, proving to families that White Castle was a safe, practical choice. He would tour local ladies' groups around and show them, these are our state-of-the-art appliances. Here is our pristine, clean store. We're going to grind the meat in front of you. Everything is this highly standardized system. And it wins them over because the price is right and the marketing of it, the showmanship that went along with these hamburgers, was hard to beat. White Castle had such a great business model, in fact, that almost as soon as it started, everyone copied it. And by that, I mean fully copied. Let me read you some of the names of these rival burger stands. Royal Castle, White Tower, White Clock, Little Castle, that's spelled with a K. Little Palaces, Little Crowns, White Knight Nickel Sandwich. White Palace, White Log, White House, White Tavern, White Hut, White Fortress. I think you get the picture. Some places didn't even try and come up with a new name. They just straight up called themselves White Castle too. People in cities across America said, okay, there's something about this White Castle. We're not sure what it is. So let's just copy the whole damn thing. Let's copy the name almost. Let's copy the architecture. Let's copy the burger. Let's copy the delivery system. Let's copy everything. The quality of these copycat operations was often questionable. But since many of them were housed in white buildings or featured castle architecture like turrets, they appeared extremely similar to White Castle. Some even had copycat slogans like, take home a bagful. Any reasonable customer would have been genuinely confused. It'd be kind of like if McDonald's was existing in a location and somebody opened something with golden arches next door and called it McConnell's. Got this little 
misunderstanding. Hmm? See, they're McDonald's. I'm McDowell's. They got the golden arches. Mine is the golden arcs. It's trademark infringement, obviously. A company is only as good as its name. You know, when that name gets diluted, it's a threat to their existence. The most shameless copycat was White Tower, started in Milwaukee in 1926. According to historian Marsha Chatlin, White Tower set up in the same cities as White Castle and copied their architecture and strategy to a T. They also bribed a White Castle manager to steal accounting records, manuals, even the designs to White Castle's signature hamburger paddle. Naturally, White Castle sued White Tower, eventually winning a payout of $82,000. But not before White Tower ridiculously sued them. They claimed that White Castle infringed on White Tower's market when it expanded to Detroit. You truly can't make this stuff up. For a while, you know, the success became such that you could go to a town and find a, a, a place selling small hamburgers in the 30s and 40s. And it wasn't a surprise to you to find it because White Castle created that market. One of the most famous clones is still around today. Crystal, that's spelled with a K, headquartered in Georgia. Kids just naturally love Crystal hamburgers because the flavor steamed right into the brunch. One of Crystal's co-founders admitted to visiting White Castle before opening Crystal in 1932. Crystal, by the way, was meant to imply clean as a crystal. And just like White Castle, they sell their small square sliders by the sackful. Quite frankly, the biggest difference between their hamburgers and White Castle's is that Crystal adds mustard. As you can imagine, all of this was extremely troubling for our real estate agent turned burger tycoon Billy Ingram, who, remember, spent years of his life campaigning for the public to eat ground beef and meticulously standardizing each castle so that customers had the same perfect experience every time. It was in the middle of this copycat boom that White Castle took stock of its restaurants and made the decision to cut free from its home state of Kansas. You listen to A People's History of Kansas City for a fresh take on local history. We want to honor these stories and we take the reporting very seriously. And sometimes we just need to chill. Want to hang? Let's party! Join us at our annual benefit, Radioactive, on June 14th. NPR's All Things Considered host Ari Shapiro will make a special appearance. And boy, it's gonna be bumping. You gotta be there. Please come support our work. Ticket information is available at kcur.org radioactive. A lot has been said about the ghosts of former fast food franchises, how their architecture can sort of haunt cities long after they leave. The most iconic is probably Pizza Hut, which was also created in Wichita, by the way. Its slanted roof is impossible to hide, even after a coffee shop or liquor store moves in. But every once in a while, you might also see an old White Castle, that impossible-to-mistake white box. There aren't any brick-and-mortar White Castles in Kansas City today, but the building that housed KC's second-ever White Castle from 1924, that still stands at 7th and Grant downtown. It's just been turned into a barbershop. When customers or passersby ask the salon about it, employees proudly point to a historical photo of the original White Castle in all its glory. White Castle tried again in the Kansas City metro in the mid-1980s, 
Some might remember there was a lot of drama over the Overland Park location, which the city council wanted to paint beige instead of its traditional white to better fit its earth-toned aesthetic. Regardless, by 2001, White Castle pulled out of the city again, this time for good. That hasn't hurt White Castle from maintaining a local fandom, though. In fact, it might have actually strengthened it. A Facebook page called Bring White Castle Back to the Kansas City Area has more than 2,000 followers. And every once in a while, someone will post something earnest, like they heard a rumor it was finally coming back. For the record, it's not. And in Wichita, the birthplace of the Slider Empire, White Castle has essentially disappeared. There hasn't been a restaurant in operation there since 1938. In fact, there's not a single White Castle left in the entire state. The very first restaurant is now a bank, with nothing more than a plaque to show for it. When Adam Chandler was reporting on White Castle for his book, he made a special trip to Wichita to check it out. I went up to a teller and I said, all right, you got to tell me, how many people come in to admire this plaque over the course of a week or a month? And she told me 20 to 30 people drop into the bank and take a picture or, you know, admire the plaque. That doesn't surprise me because I think there is a strong feeling about White Castle. But to have this kind of memorial to it and have it be something that people make a pilgrimage to, I think kind of shows it it, it stood the test of time, even though there hasn't been a White Castle in Kansas in many years. So what exactly happened here? Why did White Castle ditch its home state? Well, it has to do with how the business changed in the 1930s. The first big shift was that Walt Anderson let Billy Ingram purchase his half of the company. David Hogan says wanderlust had gotten the better of Walt. The former fry cook was bored with hamburgers and much more passionate about flying airplanes. He ended up dedicating himself to aviation, which at the time was a big industry in Wichita. And once Billy Ingram was in complete control of the corporation, he decided to make another major move he relocated the company's head office to Columbus, Ohio. At that point, Columbus, Ohio was in the middle of their business territory. Billy was looking at the profitability of each of White Castle's locations, and he discovered that while he was nostalgic about those original castles in Wichita, they weren't actually doing as well as other cities. As a result, Billy intended to sell off those first White Castle buildings, but only to non-restaurants. He didn't want anyone capitalizing on the White Castle brand. He changed his mind, though, when a longtime employee named Jimmy King made him a pitch. I'm sure that Mr. King is probably gone now because when I met with him 25 years ago, he was a very old man. Jimmy King had been one of Billy's right-hand men from the start in Wichita. But when he moved to Ohio for the company, he kind of hated it. He desperately wanted to go home to Kansas. So when he heard that Billy was closing the locations down, he offered to buy four of them. Jimmy didn't have a lot of money, but Billy agreed anyway. Essentially, he was given the option, do you want to take over some of these operations under a different name? And he said, sure, I'll do that. So Jimmy rehired most of the old restaurant operators and dubbed the new burger stands King's X. So, you know, not a castle, but still in that royal family. Then King's X carried on the White Castle tradition in Wichita, unofficially, for some 70 years until the last one closed in 2012. That's three times as long as Walt Anderson's burger reign in town. And it wasn't just Jimmy King carrying on White Castle's mission after it left. 
This was happening all over. When White Castle started pulling out of the Kansas City market in the late 30s, multiple Kansas City operators went on to start their own hamburger chains. There was Wolf Burgers, Truman's Hamburgers, Hayes Hamburgers, and perhaps most famously, Town Topic. Town Topic is one of the 21 essential hamburgers of America, according to a 2015 Eater article. And they still have two locations in downtown Kansas City, down from a peak of six. The mini chain was started in 1937 by former White Castle employee Claude Sparks, who told the Kansas City Star that he patterned it exactly after White Castle. And Claude's descendants still make their sliders using a very familiar method today, by steam griddling the patty on top of super thin shreds of raw onion. All that's to say, it's hard to overstate the importance of White Castle in fast food history. On top of these copycat chains and former employees going out on their own, the case could be made that all fast food companies have lifted something from White Castle's playbook in one form or another. In 2014, Time Magazine named the original White Castle slider the most influential burger of all time. In second place was McDonald's. Get yourself ready for a trip through McDonald's land. You know McDonald's. Originally started by the McDonald brothers in the 1940s in San Bernardino, California, it was eventually taken national by Ray Kroc in 1955. It may be the dominant chain now, but it borrowed so much from White Castle. A limited menu, diligent levels of cleanliness, and one slightly more obvious one. If you find an old picture from 1948 of the very first McDonald's, it has a slogan that says, buy and buy the bag on the marquee. And that's a direct ripoff of White Castle. Chandler says the reason McDonald's has since overshadowed White Castle is mostly simple. Its geographic footprint is just so much bigger. White Castle currently has less than 400 restaurants in the United States. McDonald's has more than 13,000. And that number triples if you look at the whole world. You cannot throw a stone in the air without hitting a McDonald's. But what White Castle really did in paving the way for brands like McDonald's and all of its burgerly brethren is, is hard to match. It's hard to understand. It's hard to grasp because it came from virtually nothing. The big difference between these two business models is that White Castle only expanded when they had the money to expand. They didn't follow the franchise model like McDonald's did. White Castle is is the kind of underdog in this story because they didn't basically put the onus on small franchisees to go into debt or to sign onerous agreements that made it difficult for them to get out of their business if things weren't going well. It makes sense. But if you ask David Hogan, he has another theory for why White Castle's the underdog here. Ray Kroc's massive propaganda machine, which essentially erased White Castle from hamburger history. To believe the stories of Ray Kroc, he invented fast food. That is essentially the message that people get today is the McDonald's was the revolutionary factor in the fast food industry. McDonald's was a Johnny Cumberland. Ray Kroc, bless his heart, just uh, learned somehow to do it bigger. And ultimately, I guess you could argue better. White Castle may only have a physical presence in 16 states today, but they have expanded in other ways, like into the grocery store. Sliders, chicken rings, breakfast... 
all available in the freezer aisle. And they're still family-owned. Their current CEO is Lisa Ingram, the great-granddaughter of Billy Ingram. At the end of the day, we don't try to be like everybody else. We're not trying to read someone else's playbook. We're just trying to write our own stories. White Castle spokesperson Jamie Richardson is married to a fourth-generation Ingram, and he says the White Castle business model today bears a lot of resemblance to the one Billy and Walt started in the 20s. It actually pays homage to Walt Anderson's first burger with the 1921 slider. To mimic that urban legend, they have a special press at every castle to smash down a pre-portioned meatball. Billy had this vision that business should make lives better for people and that if we could give people opportunity, they would have the chance to be their best self. Since 1921, we've had one objective and that was to improve everything that we had in connection. If he was hustling, it was hustling to do what he could for the, the team members. We don't really want to be the biggest. We want to be the most connected. White Castle doesn't just know it's the underdog. It embraces it. White Castle fandom stands out in large part because of how small White Castle is relative to a giant like McDonald's. And it's geographically limited in its its availability. And it's not necessarily set on the highways. So it has a lot of things around it that make it hard to get to. And I think part of that's exemplified by the movie Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle. Okay, if you haven't seen Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle, it's this stoner buddy comedy where two friends smoke a ton of weed and go on a crazy adventure in hopes of making it to their nearest White Castle. And 20-year spoiler warning here, but at the end of the movie, there's this moment where Harold and Kumar finally see a White Castle in the distance. And Kumar starts this motivational speech about why his parents immigrated to this country in the first place. They wanted to live in a land that treated them as equals. A land filled with hamburger stands. And not just one type of hamburger, okay? Hundreds of types with different sizes, toppings, and condiments. It's an incredibly cheesy moment, but it does take on new meaning when you realize that what he's describing, that's all thanks to White Castle and the fast food industry it sparked 100 years ago. This is about the pursuit of happiness. This night is about the American dream. People are hungry for, well, one, for marijuana, but also for a release, for an escape, for something that's cheap and familiar and and, and stands in for meaning in a lot of ways. That's sort of the beauty in fast food. Whether you're on the road or in a new city, you're able to get exactly the food you're craving and have it taste the exact way it has since you were a kid. And that's not an accident. It's how Billy Ingram and Walt Anderson built it a century ago. A White Castle slider in New York was always supposed to taste the same in St. Louis. Could just any hamburger inspire this kind of loyalty? No, but then a White Castle is no ordinary hamburger. I think in a universe where White Castle didn't exist, you would still have the need for roadside food. And I don't know if it would look the exact same. And I don't know if it would be hamburgers. Of course, the story of fast food doesn't end here. Because, as we know... The massive footprint that these restaurant chains created has totally transformed our communities, and we're still dealing with the consequences. Next time on A People's History of Kansas City. 
how McDonald's started to take over Kansas City in the 60s by promising black entrepreneurs the American dream. You give a, a black guy a franchise where there's not much disposable income, and it's a hard deal to crack. So he said, well, I tell y'all what we're going to do. We're going to pick at your place, and our people are not going to shop at your place anymore. All of these ways that McDonald's becomes another actor in this dramatic moment in American history, I wanted people to see that it wasn't just the place. It was a significant part of the story of struggle and the story of solutions and the story of unfinished business of race relations in America. A People's History of Kansas City is a production from KCUR Studios. It's hosted by me, Suzanne Hogan. Our senior producer is Mackenzie Martin, who also reported, produced, and mixed this episode with editing by me and Gabe Rosenberg. We had lots of archival audio in this episode, including commercials from White Castle, McDonald's, Crystal, and Betty Crocker, and clips from Popeye the Sailor, Let's Make a Sandwich, The Cactus and Randy Show, Coming to America, and Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle. Additional sound and archival interviews are thanks to White Castle and Tim Kahn. Music this episode from Beck, People Under the Stairs, Nora Bays, Hoagie Carmichael and his pals, Duke Ellington, and Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks this episode to Scott Sparks and Andrea Broomfield. For additional reading on the history of White Castle and fast food, Mackenzie highly recommends Adam Chandler's Drive Through Dreams and Selling Them by the Sack by David Hogan, who, by the way, has no relation to me. And I just want to say that if you like food history specifically, we have two other episodes that I think you might want to check out. Kansas City's Barbecue King and A Toast to the Birthplace of Sliced Bread. Okay, that's it. We have so much more coming down the feed in the coming months, so stay tuned. You can get in touch with us at kcur.org slash peopleshistory, and we're on Twitter at phkcpod for more stories about the people who created Kansas City. I'm Suzanne Hogan. Take care, and thanks for listening. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.